arriving in U.S. mail from St. Louis in the original de Havilland DH-4 biplane and 10 bulky gunny sacks are the combined audiobook renditions and supplemental background information as presented in podcast form by moi, me, Robert P. Fitton. Good evening to one and all, wherever in the galaxy you make your home. You're a smart insurance man, aren't you, Mr. Neff? Well, I've been at it 11 years. Doing pretty well? Mm, it's a living. You handle just automobile insurance or all kinds? All kinds. Fire, earthquake, theft, public liability, group insurance, industrial stuff, and so on right down the line. Accident insurance? Accident insurance? Sure, Mr. Dietrichson. Wish you'd tell me what's engraved on that anklet. Just my name. As for instance? Phyllis. Phyllis, huh? I think I like that. But you're not sure. I'd have to drive it around the block a couple of times. Mr. Neff, why don't you drop by tomorrow evening around 8.30? He'll be in then. Who? My husband. You were anxious to talk to him, weren't you? Yeah, I was, but uh, I'm sort of getting over the idea, if you know what I mean. There's a speed limit in this state, Mr. Neff. 45 miles an hour. How fast was I going, officer? I'd say around 90. Suppose you get down off your motorcycle and give me a ticket. Suppose I let you off with a warning this time. Suppose it doesn't take. Suppose I have to whack you over the knuckles. Suppose I bust out crying and put my head in your shoulder. Suppose you try putting it on my husband's shoulder. That tears it. Eight thirty tomorrow evening, ma'am. That's what I suggested. Will you be here too? I guess so. I usually am. Same chair, same perfume, same anklet. I wonder if I know what you mean. I wonder if you wonder. I would ask you to play back this scene between McMurray and Stanwick. Listen to the incredibly crisp dialogue. Each line bounces off its intended victim or is absorbed into a never-ending ether of doubt enveloped by lust. Well, Billy Wilder wrote part of the screenplay, but you're listening to the great Raymond Chandler. Certainly stirs the emotions. So Mr. Butts, hot to trot for Connie, whom he saw sunbathing, minus a few portions of her narrowly constructed bikini, has his sights set on this sensual woman in the company owned by Walter Thornton, her husband. But Butts is in a cocoon. His clouded thinking has prompted his usual savvy and cynical self not to question who Connie is or where she came from at all. Gordon Butts can sense the power and lifestyle that would be his should he lasso Connie and capture Walter Thornton's company. He thinks he's playing her yet as Butts who is subtly being advanced for the long run. Promotions and more money and Connie. And Butts is changing, becoming a tad more sophisticated, but you can't take the slob out of Crane's Beach. Butts is thinking of a bolder plan, and we shall hear about it from Sleaze Butts himself, as episode two of Framed by Robert P. Fitton begins at this exact moment. Framed by R.P. Fitton, chapter seven. Spring was a golden time for me, although I noticed certain changes in Connie. We spent some weekends away, at first in New York City. I was exposed to a life I had never considered. We took in Broadway shows, perused art museums, and went to the symphony. The education of Gordon Butts, culturally and aesthetically advanced and soared. In retrospect, I was becoming a different person, and was being led by a strong-willed, determined woman who made it her business to refine the man she now claimed as her own. Restaurants knew us when we walked in, and so did a certain group at the theaters. I was a man who a year earlier had been fired and was now thrust into a different realm. Somehow she planned it all, Garrity. I never had to get tickets for anything or make the reservations at a restaurant. I picked up the subtleties of ordering wine and exotic foods, the names of which I could never have pronounced six months before. But I kept looking over my shoulder, not just for Walter Thornton, but for everything to come tumbling down. When was this graceful and articulate woman going to see through my facade? I slowly came to realize she had, very early on, seen my brand of acting and stretching the truth. Maybe it gave her a sense of power to bring me along, or maybe she liked hard luck cases. Or could it be that she just wanted to take over my mind and body? 
I had just gotten back from Bermuda with Connie. It was a Monday morning in March, but it could have been later. Spring seemed closer than it was. The air was warming, and Connie had talked about purchasing me a new car. I was preparing to sign for a condo on Long Island and move out of the dump I had been living in for the past few years. With Connie's help and cold, hard cash, I'd be on the 15th floor of a plush, exclusive community only entered through an electronic security system and containing four elegantly furnished and decorated rooms. I'd be neater once I moved in. That week, she also arranged for me to develop a closer working relationship with her husband. Walter Thornton and I were slated to travel together, hitting both warehouses and all the salesmen during a 10-day period. Connie told me it would help me learn the business, and she was right. Walter Thornton not only had good personal instincts about the business, but he had solid years of experience. He knew the products and gladly instructed me on how to bid the big job, as well as buying something as simple as copper joints for tubing. I felt no guilt about anything. As I traveled south from the city with Walter Thornton in the front seat of my Torino, listening to his stories from the old days, my mind was fixed back to a Bermuda hotel room and what I had done all weekend with his wife. I looked at his jowls and how they vibrated when he talked, how he flipped a large clump of hair over his balding head, and how his teeth protruded like a rabbit even when he wasn't talking. I saw him popping the nitro and wanted him out of the way. I wanted him buried in the ground, under some city cemetery stone, so I could have Connie all the time. So I could move into his Tanglewood home and have Connie in the business. Let's understand the dynamic of why people would give a major construction job to you, Gordon. What was that, sir? Well, communication, of course. But more than that, it's interpersonal relationships. You get to know your clients. You know what makes them tick. Know their likes and their dislikes, whether they like to go fishing or skiing. That's all you talk about, like it's the most important thing in the world. You go out with them on a boat or put on a pair of skis. Live your customers' lives, Gordon. Yeah, I knew the routine. Bullshit the customer. Make them think you really care about their lives. Sometimes I did care, maybe most of the time, but only because I was there. I wasn't about to be spending my personal time on some dumb fishing boat. We moved down the New Jersey Turnpike at 75 miles an hour, and Walter Thornton's craggy face was silhouetted against the landscape, whipping by the car. Maybe if I hid the nitro, Betty yet substituted something else. Something that wouldn't alert a coroner during an autopsy on this man in the passenger seat. If I was on the road with him, maybe I could push him, maybe have the car break down and force him into a long, strenuous march with no nitro, let his heart fold under the pressure. I had a blatant arrogance, Garrity. You know that. You saw it right away. You knew it was my weakness, my undoing amidst all my other vanities. In my mind, as we were headed into southern New Jersey, I knew sometime during the week I'd have to travel to a bookstore or a library rather than get on the internet and get a book on drugs. Pay cash. Pay cash for something that would allow me to successfully orchestrate Walter Thornton's death. And I wouldn't tell Connie. She would never know. I couldn't take the chance that she would jettison me if she knew I had killed her husband, even though somewhere in my mind I sensed that she would applaud his passing. I talked to Connie from a payphone along the state highway and stayed off the company's cell phone. Walter Thornton was back in a motel room watching situation comedies and laughing at inane attempts at humor. She sweet-talked me on the phone as if she were trying to emotionally torment me from a hundred-plus miles away and graphically recounted our time in Bermuda. I wanted her more than anything except the power of having that company. It was a toss-up. Controlling Walter Thornton's business meant stability and long-term security. All I had to do was kill him. I had glimpses of and it tasted power. With eight salespeople under me, and most of them kids right out of college, I commanded increasing control. I savored establishing their sales goals, just like so many bastards had over me in the past. I threatened and hinted at retaliation if the goals weren't met. The goals I had established bore no relationship to reality or a solid business sense, and they jumped Garrity, every one of them, even the older guys who had been with Walter Thornton for years. 
We were at breakfast the next morning with three guys we made report to the Sunnyside restaurant at the bizarre hour of 6 a.m. Walter talked about facts and figures and let me intimidate and cajole these men. God, I loved it. I loved the look in their eyes, debating in their own minds whether they'd have a job by summer. We have only two warehouses, but we have plans for more. But gentlemen, warehouses, future expansion, and the entire business is fueled by sales. Without sales, we have nothing. If you can't cut it, if you don't like the goals I've set, then we'll get somebody else. There are a hundred guys out there without work, just itching to take your position. I would frankly be glad to give it to them. In sales, nothing is sacred. You don't pull in the numbers, you're out. You piss off your accounts, you're gone. We want this market and we're going to capture it. Walter Thornton was talking about one of his dogs being groomed for some Long Island show. And the oldest salesman in the corner looked at me with such disdain, I thought he might punch me. But the son of a bitch knew that I had him. I was in the position he had probably earned. He knew nothing of my reward from Connie. And he stared at Walter Thornton and wondered how his old friend had allowed this guy, Gordon Butts, who a year ago walked the streets looking for work, to be in charge. He never liked me anyways, but I had him. I had him like I had Walter Thornton. It was inevitable. I spent the next two hours rattling off computer report statistics and projections. And then I had the gall to lecture these seasoned veterans on the best aspects of selling. I could see the venom in their eyes as I pontificated. Walter Thornton threw in jabbing criticisms, only buttressing their anger. But they all submitted Garrity. Funny about most people, when they know they're getting screwed and they should walk out of a situation, but then fear overtakes them. It's easy. Walk out. I should have walked out from the situation now developing in my life. I was confident that morning and all week as I traveled with Walter Thornton and stepped over all the salesmen up the coast. I thought it was good that they hated me. No respect, no performance. And I was starting to believe it all myself, forgetting I owed my position to the fact that I was Connie Thornton's lover. But there's always rationalization. I just got a lucky break. I was a good salesman and never had a break before. I would have said anything, believed anything, along the path to kill Walter Thornton and seize control of his life. Framed by R.P. Fitton Chapter 8 Gordon Butts moves up in the world, said Tom as he walked into my new condo overlooking the city. You'll come back and see the peons in Crane's Beach sometime, won't you? I'll give the matter consideration, I said, pausing to let him think. Then I broke into a laugh and slapped his shoulder. Beer, Tommy? Imported, no doubt. As a matter of fact, it is. I went to the refrigerator and pulled out one of those microbrewery specials and poured it into a thick new glass. I wanted to tell him more about Connie, but I held back. I didn't want to make myself vulnerable to anyone. Probably the only smart thing I did during all this time. Tom stared out the window at the sun-splashed city and sipped on the heavy beer. Then he sincerely toasted my success. I found out then that he didn't have a steady job and his girlfriend was back working in the local school system and he did moonlighting, doing the books for companies in the area. He hinted but never asked me for a job. Part of me felt sorry for Tom, even though I'd never mixed friendship with business. And another part of me didn't want to share my success with Tom or anyone else. Tom had debts, which wasn't my problem. He should have been out there hitting the pavement to get a new job. Where do you see yourself a year from now, Gordon? You've had a fast rise. I slowly turned in the twilight, glancing at the contrasting shadows and brightness cutting the city buildings. I moved closer to his face like I would have one of my own salesmen. I opened my mouth for a second and let him wait, looking him squarely in the eye. A year from now, I'm going to have it all. Tom held the beer, at first looking fearful, and then he laughed. I kept a serious face and let his laughter peter out. What do you mean, Gordon? What are you talking about? I want to run Thornton. Walter's getting up there. He should spend the rest of his time relaxing. Why does he need the stress of everyday operation? I'm on the rise, Tommy. Yep, and I can do it. I have done it. It's a long way to the bottom once you reach the top. What the hell's that supposed to mean? Some kind of threat? No threat, in some ways. 
I like being the lonesome accountant, dabbling and adding up inconsequential figures with little or no responsibility. I have no money. You know how it was. You were there a year ago. Yeah, was, was, Tom. You don't get it, Gordon. With a greater position becomes a greater responsibility. Pressure. Pressure to stay on top. I can take it. Can you? Tom stepped from the window and moved to the wide leather chair near the big screen TV. Gordon, don't worry about having more. You're Thornton's sales manager. I don't see why... Money and power grab any man, Tom. I want them both. Well, at least you haven't changed. Same Gordon. New condo. Inflated job. Same Gordon. Taking more. Just like some of the floozies you might pick up at Guido's. They start adding up like notches on the bed. And for what? Who are you trying to impress, Gordon? Me. You got a girlfriend? Not just uh, someone from the bars or on the road. You've got somebody, haven't you? You're a dreamer, Tom. I scooped up the remote and tried to impress Tom with my new dish satellite system. Dozens of games and a couple of fights rolled by, but Tom didn't seem interested. Gordon, you'll have to see what you can do for me. I need work. Well, sometimes we just have to tighten our belts. I went through week after week looking through the Sunday newspapers. It takes time, buddy. Well, then don't call me buddy. You claim to have this big position, and I'm not asking for a permanent job, just some per diem work. Damn it, Gordon. Come down from your high horse, will you? I cooled him off, brought him out to eat, and pretended to be interested. I wished I already had the new BMW Connie had ordered. We took Tom's little orange Volkswagen back from a high-class restaurant. I was a little giddy at seeing him slightly uncomfortable at dinner. It wasn't Guido's, but intimidating him diverted him from trying to weasel a job from me. He dropped me off outside the high-rise security area and hinted again about the job, but I sent him on his way. At that moment, I was thinking about the public library, the section on pharmaceuticals, and how I would find an exact look-alike for that nitro. I was going to waltz Walter Thornton into my plans. It would be quick and natural, and no one would ever know I had engineered his death. Not even Connie. And I knew what she would do. She was too smart not to wait and to let time pass after her husband's death. But I also knew the relationship with me might be enhanced without Walter Thornton's lingering presence. I could spend more time at Tanglewood, more weekends away, more money, more control in the business. And I would take that business, and she would let me do it. She'd want me to do it. I felt this destiny every time she brought me into a new restaurant, every time she talked about her plans for expansion. Walter Thornton had been much too conservative, and while she didn't say it, she had manipulated him and he didn't even know it. I walked the six blocks back to the five-story brick public library in the center of town. How do you enter a public building or any other place with the notion you're going there to find the means to kill somebody? Not just anybody, but somebody in a position of authority in your life. I climbed the walkway under the white globe lamps along the window sheets. I saw people inside working hard, probably on school projects, studying for college exams and appreciating fine works of art. I opened the bronze frame door and entered the library for the express purpose of being the beneficiary of a cold-blooded murder. I walked past the front desk, paused, and felt as if every eye in the place was focused on me, and I sensed they all knew my intent. But nobody cared, Garrity. Nobody knew that under the facade of a sport coat and jeans lay the heart of a killer. I stepped up to the front desk. I need, uh, the pharmaceutical section. The male librarian peered up from his work. I wasn't sure that I didn't look like a killer, but he smiled. He pulled out a photocopied library floor plan and swiped his red felt marker over the paper, drawing a line to the third floor and a set of stacks near the outside window. I thanked him. He hadn't uttered a word and went back to his paperwork. Now I thought about Connie. Suppose she had ventured to my condo and followed me up here. She would find out about my plot. I wondered whether she would object. I thought about what she would say if she saw me memorizing drugs and trying to find out how to kill her husband. I suspected she would have been appalled at first, but I was more and more convinced, call it a gut feeling or a special sensitivity about the matter, but I thought she would condone it. After all, it would fit into her plans for us. I would marry her and assume greater control. Or would she rise to head the company? 
climbed the dark stairwell and stayed out of view of the central elevator. Who was I to think that she would automatically marry me? I stopped between the second and third floor. What if she didn't? What if she dumped me after I killed her husband? I continued up and opened the heavier door. I walked between the stacks, now inundated with the smell of hardcover books, and laughed. She needed me. She needed the side of me that she could never be. The whole thing would fall together once I murdered Walter Thornton. Nitroglycerin was prescribed for the prevention and treatment of chest pains related to angina. It could be used after somebody had a heart attack or for high blood pressure. Nitroglycerin sounded like the stuff bombs were made out of. I sat at a long oak table between two windows in the plaster wall. Walter Thornton took nitroglycerin capsules. I had studied them as he popped them in the hotel room and in the car. While he was in the bathroom, I had held the little purple and white caplets. He took them under the tongue. How was Gordon Butts going to simulate nitroglycerin capsules with some placebo? I didn't know what the hell I was doing, but I soon discovered, as I hid between the windows, that I might put something in his prescription bottle that would cause a slight burning under the tongue. I turned the glossy book pages. Over-the-counter cough drugs aggravated heart conditions. That was a possibility. When he got a cold, I could make sure a cold tablet got into his system, but it might not kill him. Alcohol could lower blood pressure and cause fainting. Big deal. What if he simply didn't have his tablets and was forced to undergo strenuous exercise? I closed the drug book. Maybe it was as simple as that. Who was going to question whether I dumped the tablets out somewhere? I knew a hundred back roads and a hundred more ways to break down. I'd put Walter Thornton through the ringer, push him for miles until he reached for his tablets. It would mean not having his cell phone or making sure we weren't near a payphone or any other phone. I stood and I looked out the window toward the high-rise. I would drive back to New Jersey, maybe even Monday morning, seek out the back roads I knew so well. I'd travel through the rural country roads miles from anywhere, along the split rail and wire fences. I pictured the back roads where Walter Thornton would have to plod step after winded step, thinking help was just over the next hill. Only Walter Thornton had an appointment with death. Death was the destiny I sought for him and out of his death I would rise to an even greater power. All this would take place, and Connie would investigate nothing. She would keep her mouth shut, even if she suspected. Even if blame inadvertently shifted toward her, she would not accuse me. I would pull it off, pursue her, and marry her. My secret would be safe all the way to the grave. Framed by R.P. Fitton, Chapter 9 I roared off the turnpike, but with hands shaking and a bummed stomach, drove inland on my practice run. I still owned the Torino at the time, but Connie was arranging a lease BMW. Even now, all my gas and every other expense were on the tab, the accounting of which I had nothing to do with. I was moving up with Garrity, with Walter Thornton, the only obstacle in my way. Before the day was over, I would have the logistics of his death planted in my mind. Around 9 a.m., I drove into a pothole-laden industrial park, 23 miles from the interstate rest area. Back at the rest area, I would empty Walter Thornton's nitroglycerin pills and bury his cell phone in the trash dumpster. I had a mental picture of the rest area as I pulled alongside a metal building. I had called a belligerent contractor named Blanchard, who worked the Philadelphia area, and bought his supplies from my chief competitor, Donovan LTD a plumbing house out of New York. I told him my call would be short. He agreed to see me for ten minutes. I was already four minutes late. I walked into a coffee-saturated office, boxed with scuffed wood paneling and lit overhead by fluorescent panels. I crawled over the scattered boxes and discarded parts and supplies. Yeah, called a gruff voice from the side office. The hollow wood door was unstained and half-opened. Mr. Blanchard, it's Gordon Butts from Thornton. I checked my watch. It was seven past nine. I called earlier about... Blanchard ripped open the door. He gripped the molding with his large hand and with his dog-jowl face looked me over. What the hell are you doing here, Butts? I told Walter Thornton years ago I like Tom Donovan. He's godfather to my kid. 
We go out on the Chesapeake fishing. We go to ball games. I can have flyers tickets anytime. Thornton wants to see you, Mr. Blanchard. I wanted to hurtle over the Wheel McLean gas burner and lay my fist into this guy's rounded, dirty undershirt. So? Can't hurt. How do you know what the hell Donovan is charging you anyway? Tom takes care of his buddies. I stepped over the Wheel McLean and slid along the cracked blue linoleum. I opened my mouth slightly, thinking of the importance of this part of my plan. With my right foot forward and my fist tightened, I placed my face within inches of Blanchard's fat puss. Are you a businessman or are you just give away your profits? I was making profits, butts, before you were born. Yeah? I stayed in his face. And I bet you checked every price back then, didn't you, Al? He blinked his bloodshot blue eyes and wiped his lips with his right hand. All right, I see your point. At least I can see what I'm paying for things. I'll say this for you, butts. You got balls. Walter Thornton never gave a sweet shit about what I was paying. I'll tell you this, Al. If Donovan's been charging you more, I can calculate what you might have lost over the years. And if you don't dump him, you might as well take his profits as a tax deduction to charity. He tightened his lips and his brow crunched up to his thick white hair. Then he exposed his yellow stained teeth and patted my shoulder. I like you, butts. You may never see one order from me, but I like you. Good. I only want to give people a fair deal no matter where they buy. I'd like to bring Walter in here in the week of the third. I can finalize it by phone if we get closer. Okay, I'll meet with him. You got potential there, butts. He shook my hand and returned to the office. I saw a burning cigarette in the ashtray and a woman's long leg crossed over a tight orange miniskirt in the side chair. I nodded and turned. Blanchard was a little crass, but we all have our moments, Garrity. Even more than making this man a part of my plan to kill Walter Thornton, I wanted to come back here and steal the business from Donovan. A few nervous tinges floated through my stomach as I stumbled over the debris and stepped into the thin March air. Blanchard could be had. I backed out to Torino and seemed to hit every pothole through the industrial park. I put on my directional and took the first side street past a few older vinyl-sided houses and turned onto the Mavisville Road, cutting 40 miles through the rural countryside to the turnpike across the state. In April, I would tell the authorities Walter Thornton had wanted to see spring arrive in its country splendor. That would be the quote, and the reason we didn't take the interstate back to the city. The tires hummed as I drove along the asphalt gravel into the woods. Yellow fields had appeared after the snow had melted, and a few purple and yellow crocuses poked through the soil. I drove under the bare branch trees, my throat tight during this dress rehearsal. It was critical I get the jitters out now and become familiar with the surroundings so I could perform later. I checked the odometer. I was 21 miles from the industrial park on a narrowing road, becoming bumpier and undulating over forested knolls like an endless roller coaster. I could feel the Torino's tires shaking with the poor road surface as my own heart fluttered. I looked into my dark, guiltless eyes, cigarette jammed in the corner of my mouth and my face pale. The odometer rolled past the 22-mile mark. You're going to die out here, Walter, but no one's going to know it was murder because I'm going to loosen the alternator wires. You ain't going to have power, baby, and you ain't going to have a phone. You're going to walk on foot. I'll tell you that my cell phone battery had drained. Maybe you'll have a cold and I'll slip a tablet into your breakfast. Before the trees bloom, you're going to be dead, mister. I'll have your business and your wife's. Sayonara. My voice was high-pitched and strewn with emotion. I pulled off the road and stopped on a frozen stretch of dirt. I gazed up a little wood-lined hill with a rail fence up top and a parched strawgrass meadow at the bottom of the hill. This is where I'd stop the Torino. The battery wouldn't have received power, and once I shut off the car, it would be dead. Walter Thornton would begin a forced march. I pushed open my door. It clunked at the hinge, and I left it open. I walked around the frozen ground and wondered what Walter Thornton was doing right now as his sales manager walked along this rural road, plotting his demise. I chucked my cigarette and quickly lit another. 
knowing I was a long way from the interstate, but I wondered as I plodded up the hill the true condition of Walter Thornton's heart. I hadn't checked that. Maybe I should have gained access to his medical reports or merely had an extended conversation with Connie. She would gladly volunteer the victim's medical status. I leaned against the weathered rail fence and stared across a leave-packed forest floor. A couple of squirrels looked over at me and then continued up the neighboring trees. I gripped the icy fence rail, my breath steamy in the frigid air. The sun pierced the branches across the road and shined in my eyes. I squinted and feared Walter Thornton might gain a new burst of strength or survive the trek through the wilderness. I didn't think he'd survive. It would be my job to convince him to make the trek, coax him to his death. The worst-case scenario, Garrett, he would find Walter Thornton alive, but Gordon Butts would still be untouched, not accused and in the clear. I was back on Long Island by late afternoon and had dinner with Connie away from town, but I didn't like the way she looked at me. It's impossible for her to know why I was joyriding all over New Jersey that afternoon, but I swear she did. Did she know I'd been at the library studying her husband's medication? She looked at me with a cold indifference I had never seen and didn't say all that much. When I asked if she was all right, she'd smile and hold my hand and tell me she wasn't feeling well. When she began talking about her husband's condition, I felt my own heart jumpstart. Why the hell would she bring up his heart condition and specifically mention the nitro? And she kept smiling a thick smile, her blue eyes glossy. Maybe she was sick. Maybe she was taunting a man who was planning and would soon execute the perfect murder of her husband. And it was perfect, Garrity. You really didn't know, and neither did she when it was all said and done. For a few minutes, I felt like chickening out. My stomach was still queasy. You must have talked to murderers who felt this way before and after they commit their crime. Maybe it's worse when you actually inflict the pain. Before we nibbled on slices of chocolate mousse cake, I was strong again. I would lose everything I wanted if I didn't kill Walter Thornton. Because I had set the crime in my mind so many times and thought about that lonely stretch of road along the woods and rail fence, I had to go through with it. No matter what she said or might sense about my plan, I had to carry it through. But I questioned her knowledge. Maybe she had people tailing me. I kept telling myself she knew nothing, suspected nothing, and would do nothing. We didn't make love that night. The torrid nature of the affair had dimmed somewhat, but I expected that. Things would be revived once Walter Thornton was dead. But she still captivated me in and out of bed. I wanted to marry her. I wanted Tanglewood. I wanted the business. And I could feel it was all going to be mine. Framed by R.P. Fitton Chapter 10 My opportunity arrived on schedule. Walter Thornton came down with a head cold just before April Fool's Day. He was reluctant to see Blanchard, but the cold only gave him an excuse to skirt the feisty contractor. I used my sales ability and all the low-handed conniving I could to convince him privately to go with me to New Jersey. At the same time, I called Blanchard and told him Walter Thornton begged for the meeting. Walter's dark eyes brightened. He really believed he'd get Blanchard's business, and now he wanted to see him. You don't know that, do you, Garrity? Rudy Blanchard was one of the first people you talked to when you opened your investigation. I had dinner with Connie the night before I left. I know she knew I was going to kill her husband. I never mentioned any thoughts about getting Walter Thornton out of the way, and neither had she. Connie had the unique ability not only to feel things intuitively, but to quietly motivate and maneuver people and events. Perhaps my body language alerted her, or maybe I subconsciously dropped what I considered inane comments about Walter Thornton. She picked up on something. By candlelight, I sat across from her at the foray, an intimate curbside eatery on the west side. Connie added a new quality to her rapport. She treated me with a certain empathy that night. Not just kindness, it was like she was spending an evening with a flyer about to go out on a dangerous combat mission. Don't tell me she didn't know, Garrity. I never saw her feel the way she did that night. Gordon, sometimes I worry about your traveling too much, pushing yourself, 
Maybe you need some time off. I was staring at the passing cars through the glass enclosure. I set my cigarette in the clean ashtray and let it burn. Time off from the biz? She reached out and held my hand. I looked at the cigarette smoke furrowing upward and realized something, Garrity. I had seen her smoking that first afternoon in New Jersey, but never again. Like she put on a little performance to lure me in. Rest now, because in the years to come, we're really going to expand the business. I tested her. Oh, yeah? Walter's too conservative for expansion. I watched her face and tracked the beginnings of a smile that never quite formed, but her eyes opened just slightly as she spoke. Walter has his own agenda. It was a perfect answer. Interesting. We'll have more warehouses, Gordon. Mark my word. We're going to be a major force. We are. Garrity, the desire burned in her eyes, just like when she made love. I saw her little hand tighten and the knuckles get white. Did you always want to be involved in business? She paused as if the question were outside the realm I was allowed to ask. She grinned and nodded. I wanted what I have now, but I can't say I would have charted the same course. I picked up my cigarette, flicked the ashes, and ruminated on that one. She must have hustled Walter Thornton, and maybe he even knew it. I realized, Garrity, whom I was dealing with, not just the prudent office manager who balanced the accounts, but a woman who lusted after raw power. And for the first time, I feared her, what she might do, and where I would fit into her plan. What about you, Gordon? What about me? I inhaled and held the smoke in my lungs. You're a hard-ass salesman. You enjoy fighting every inch of the way. You want to fight like the kid at the corner who has a chip on his shoulder. I laughed. Oh, so you think I have a chip on my shoulder? Oh, yeah. I love that anger. I love it when it's directed toward your accounts. She leaned forward so I could see her chest. I love it when it's channeled toward me. Just as quickly, she sat back and summoned the waiter. She ordered espresso for both of us. Well, you have a bit of a chip yourself. She turned from the fleeting waiter and gave me a blank stare. You grew up in Pennsylvania. Very good. You do a background check on me? I snuffed out the cigarette. Your father works smelting iron. Hot hours on a battering job that seemed to last forever. He'd come home nights reeking of sweat and grime. Sometimes he just went off to bed. Sometimes he was just laid off for months. Well, you're very efficient, I'll say that. I took my cigarette pack out and lit another, shaking the match into the ashtray. She was always trying to intimidate me, maybe even assure I maintained my prowess and kill her husband. You went to work very early in life, spending summers on construction crews in the mountains and along the Penn Pike. You grew to hate manual labor and learned to talk your way out of anything. Probably started with your getting out of work details or uh, getting the easy jobs, befriending those in charge, your first sales experience. I'm impressed. I pushed my lips together and shook my head. For some reason, it doesn't upset me. I, I respect you for it. Well, sales is like whoring yourself out. Nobody really cares about the trivial, misplaced stories from clients who are mostly boring. She knew I was cynical and agreed with what she said, but she was rubbing it in. I kept thinking about her husband, trudging back through the woods with no nitro. I just knew Garrity. I tell you, I bet my life that Connie wanted Walter Thornton dead. Previously, we had never talked about her meeting him, but we did that night. She constructed an elaborate story worthy of a stage production to mask her true intent. She claimed to have met him at a social gathering, yet she had a faulty memory when he came to knowing how she was invited. This from a woman who remembered every detail, every number across the computer spreadsheet. She wanted Walter Thornton's position and power just like I did, only she would never take it a step further and, and kill him herself. She needed a hired killer. A killer who would be paid without a contract, who would take care of the business of murdering her husband. I was introduced uh, by accident to Walter. I could see her a few years ago, younger and just as slim and tanned, wearing some gown melted over a tight body like silk. And she wouldn't have been overt. She would have come at Walter Thornton so smoothly, so subtly and charmingly, 
He'd wonder why he had inked her name into his monthly planner. He'd wonder why he had started dating her, but he'd know she was witty and possessed an elegance that was good for him. I knew it because I felt the same thing sitting across from her right now. The candle's flame wavered across her tomato-shaped tan face. So the two of you dated for a while. I went out with him for close to a year. She must have slowly become a part of his life, edging her way in before he even knew what was happening. You add up all the little advantages, all the responsibilities, and the social commitments before you know it, Garrity, she's your woman. Not like a raging storm blowing up the coast, but more like a front stalling. The air gets heavy and you want it to rain. Everyone sweats and they run for the air conditioners, but they pray for rain. It becomes inevitable when it does rain and the stagnant air is taken out to sea. Connie married Walter Thornton in a large, overblown wedding in the city, and they honeymooned later in Mallorca and later Greece. She took him, Garrity, like she took me, not maliciously, not under threats or coercion, but in reality, it was an underhanded move, performed with such excellence and precision, it never appeared that way. I didn't want to think of it happening to myself, and neither did Walter Thornton. I was going to kill him in the morning, and no one would know. Garrity, I respect all the underhanded bastards of the world, all the crude people bothering you as they go for your pocketbook. But at least you know where you stand with those people. The worst people in the world are those who wash you into hell and have you smiling as you go. Framed by R.P. Fitton Chapter 11 on a gray, sleety morning, April 3rd, I left the slick highway ramp and steered my Torino along State Road 11 toward the industrial park in Blanchard's shop in Dillard. Half an hour before, at an isolated interstate rest area, a congested Walter Thornton went in to use the men's room. I performed my deft, well-rehearsed maneuvers in a timely and deliberate manner. I took his cell phone from under the seat and raced across the parking lot. I slipped on the snow surface but regained my balance and hurried into the blue dumpster in back of the building. I slid open the side door quickly and pitched the phone down the side of the dark, stinky rubbish heap. The dumpster door scraped against the metal track as I slid it back in place. I spun and sprinted through the stray snowflakes back to the Torino, the engine still running. I checked the restroom door. The lock was still turned. He would never know what I was about to do. I lifted the hood and I yanked the wire from the alternator and closed it again in less than five seconds. Now the battery would get no juice. Oh, the car would last to Blanchett's place, but once we got away and were stuck in the middle of nowhere, the power would be gone. So would his nitro tablets. I left the small brass container in his suitcase, but took out the entire supply of tablets. I moved like a snake to the side storm drain. I released my grip on the tablets and most of them fell through the grate. A few remained on the metal cover and I kicked them through the slats. They tumbled six feet down and pinged into the mud and water. I stared at my half-reflected image wavy against the gray sky. I turned and scrambled back to the car, clutched the driver's side handle and fell into the ripped vinyl seat. The restroom door's chrome lock turned and Walter Thornton, squinting, stepped into the spitting sleet and blew his nose. I sat calmly. Maybe I had learned from Connie how to move surreptitiously, parallel to my true intentions. I smiled, knowing I was ushering Walter Thornton toward the certainty of a natural death. Well, the radio said it's supposed to be like this all day, said Walter Thornton as he got back in the car. The engine hummed. He honked his nose into the wrinkled handkerchief again. I looked at him as I backed up. He pulled a cup of decaf from the dash and sucked it down. I hadn't wanted any coffee that morning. Even decaf would have made me jiggy. Now, Gordon, I can't believe that out of the blue, Blanchard would want to do business with us. He's been a Donovan man for years. Well, the time has come for a change, I said. You talked to Blanchard Garrity. You heard the official story of how Walter Thornton wanted to see him. It was like a game of ping pong, everybody thinking everything but the truth. 
I pondered as I swerved across the rest area just how long Walter Thornton had to live. Blanchard, his breath raunchy, lectured Walter Thornton about the plumbing business. I could see Walter Thornton's face tighten, forming pasty wrinkle lines. I thought the aggravation was good. Let him get mad. He hated Donovan and hated hearing how good a job Donovan was doing in the field. But Walter Thornton couldn't go for the jugular garrity. Connie knew it, and Donovan never respected him because Walter Thornton never attacked any of his accounts. He should have gone into Blanchard's shop that morning and undercut all the prices and made Donovan look like a price gouger. I knew the line. You start telling the customer how he's been raked over the coals all these years. Where are all the profits that your competitor overcharged you? If you had any smarts as a businessman, you wouldn't fall for that routine. But if an individual was volatile enough, he'd get himself worked into a frenzy and call your competitor. Either the guy would lower the prices, which meant less profit for him, or he'd lose the account. But the key, Garrity, in preventing it happening to you was the establishment of a good personal relationship. Doing everything for the customer at no extra charge. They appreciated that service. Walter Thornton was an expert at service, but he had trouble breaking new ground. I eventually closed Blanchard three months later. My hand twitched as I turned the Torino's key at 10.30 a.m. It's in your report, Garrity. Blanchard said my engine didn't snap to attention as usual. That worked to my advantage. So did Walter Thornton's angry demeanor. I pushed the mileage counter and looped the car into the industrial park as Walter Thornton became livid. Because of the way I had crafted this call, he truly thought Blanchard had called him out there just to berate his business. I saw as I bounced over the potholes toward the state highway, his face blushed, and I observed sweat beads along his neck and forehead. He loosened his green paisley tie, his buck teeth protruding as he smiled deeply, sometimes gasping. He didn't notice that we were taking the rural connecting road back across the state to the turnpike. I never want to see that man again! I thought to myself, if I was successful, Walter Thornton would get his wish. I checked the odometer, one mile out. I knew every tree, stream, and knoll. I remembered the cows grazing in the yellow fields just ahead. As a matter of fact, he said, looking for his cell phone under his seat, I'm calling to get his name removed from our computers. Where did I put my cell phone? Walter Thornton would make no calls that morning. I don't recall seeing your phone, Walter. Are you sure you brought it? I could swear we were in such a rush. We were in a rush because I pushed him out of the Long Island warehouse that morning, filling his head with so many facts, figures, and stats that he very well could have left the phone back at the warehouse. Give me your phone. Well, I forgot my charger. It's dead. It's the day for dead batteries. You need to get to a payphone? Oh, God. I knew there wasn't a payphone within 25 miles. We were already 15 miles from Blanchard's place. Another 10 miles and I'd stall the car. Walter Thornton kept looking back at his black suitcase. I knew he was thinking about the nitro as he breathed quickly. Maybe I wouldn't need to pull the phony breakdown routine. Connie keeps telling me I get myself all wound up. Sometimes it's best not to worry about people like Blanchard. He only wants to bust your ass, Walter. That's what upsets me. Nine more miles. I knew under the hood there was no power charging the battery, and I prayed it would have sufficiently been drained by the time we got to our location. Walter Thornton searched for his cell phone until the two-mile mark. We moved through the dense forest now. The road was narrow and very rough, and snow wafted down through the branches. Oh, we've never come this way. In all my years in New Jersey, I've never come this way. I told him I heard it was a shortcut to the highway. And I don't know if he bought it, Garrity, but it damn well didn't matter whether he bought it or not. The road converged into a smattering of dirt, mud, and ice-lined puddles. By then, Walter Thornton had popped his briefcase. We were within one mile of my planned stop. He took a large black felt-tip pen from his pocket and found Blanchard's name, account number, and phone number on the account listings. 
You have copies of the report. You can see how Walter Thornton obliterated Blanchett's name from the page. The next few minutes are imprinted in my mind, even as I speak to you now. I saw the rail fence and the tree-lined hill. I might as well have put a noose hanging from the oak branch protruding over the road. I pulled over and quickly cut the engine. What the hell is wrong? I threw the onus back on him. Something just isn't right. I don't want to break down way out here. Oh, oh no, no, of course not. You look under the hood, Gordon. We should have taken my car. He checked the accounts and didn't know the Torino was not going to start again. I raised the hood above the still hot engine. I stared at the disconnected electrical lead and heard him call out from the cracked side window. You need a new car, Gordon. He had no idea he'd be walking soon. It would be a hazardous journey along the rough terrain with no help available. Placed the alternator wire between my fingers and reconnected it. Too little, too late, I thought. My fingers were dirty. I moved around the car, got in, and turned the key. It kicked for a second, sounding more like somebody's dying breath. Then it sputtered. Battery was shot, and I ground the starter a few dozen times to drain the rest of the juice. Damn, I don't understand it. What do you think it is? He asked, looking concerned for the first time. I don't know. I'm not a mechanic, I said, and I got out. I fiddled with everything under the hood, rattling and pushing. Then I realized it didn't matter. It didn't matter whether I convinced him or not. The battery was dead. I think we're stranded. Out here? How far are we from anything? Although I'm reserving judgment on your taking this road, Gordon, I always say go for the sure thing. You don't get ahead by going for the sure thing, Walter. I had never challenged him like that, and I think he was too miffed about Blanchard and being marooned to seriously understand that I held the reins of power now. The second I shut off that key with a dead battery, Walter Thornton was dead. Everything he had worked for was now worthless. His life was in the hands of Gordon Butts. Well, we'll have to walk it, I said like a drill sergeant, shouting out an order. How far is it? he asked, setting down the account list for the first time. Ah, it's only a half a mile, if I remember the map correctly. Well, I guess I can walk a half a mile. My doctor says I need to get on the treadmill more anyway. I do more miles than that when I get on the treadmill. He stuffed the account list back into his briefcase and locked it. I watched him carefully and wasn't sure whether he'd leave without his nitro. Not that it mattered. You never located that empty case and the coroner's report found nothing inside him. You even checked the woods, Garrity. You suspected he might have dropped the capsules. And I told you I was walking ahead on the road and not paying attention, just trying to find help because Walter Thornton insisted on walking. I locked Walter Thornton's leather briefcase in the trunk and watched him put the empty nitro container in his coat pocket. He seemed up for the challenge, competing against a loss of mobility and probably his own lost youth and progressive heart disease. Walter Thornton had to prove he could hike a few miles for help. But as we started up the mud-slick road, the snow hitting our faces, I knew a long 15 miles separated him from the rest of his life. Walter Thornton trudged up a steeper and rockier hill covered with thin patches of icy snow. His suit coat and shirt moved rapidly like a motor pushed to the limit, and he kept his hand locked over his left shoulder. I could see his face whiten with extreme fatigue. I heard him groan twice as he staggered over to the roadside. Uh, I don't know if I can make it. How much further, Gordon? I saw his breath steaming in rapid bursts across the cooler air. I didn't lay a hand on this man, but I was slowly killing him. That's how the clever and smart do things in life, Garrity. You don't get your damn fingerprints on anyone or anything. Only a mile. Once you're over the hill, you've made it, Walter. He nodded and pushed back the hair flap. When he plodded up the hill again, he was hunched. The lines tightened around his eyes and his hands slid over his chest. I watched each step. His polished black shoes became smeared with dirt and swished in the mud as he fought for traction. Oh, my God! Fifty feet from the crest, he held his shirt and fumbled for the tiny metal container. I didn't want to touch him, 
and experienced the only guilt I felt during all of this when he popped open the empty brass box. My pills! Oh, Gordon, my pills! Gone! I thought I packed them! I know I did! Maybe you already took them! I thought about the storm-drained image of purple and white caplets sitting in the muddy residue six feet below the slotted cover. No, I didn't! I have to get back to the car, Gordon! Car doesn't work, Walter. We're almost on the other side. All right, all right. He took one step and simply fell like an aging tree onto the moistened dirt. I never saw him move again. It was quicker than I had thought. I took the container from his hand and ran through the woods up the hill and hurled it over the rail fence. Nobody ever found it. Not you, Garrity. Not any of your team. Not the tracking dogs. No one. If you go up there now, it's been years, but you'll find that brass container about 50 feet in and back of the rail fence at the second crest. I trotted back to the main road and I looked at Walter Thornton face down in the mud, hair flapping over his bald head. As I got closer, the snowflakes sifted onto his navy suit coat. I didn't check to see if he was dead or alive. If he was breathing, I didn't see it. Now I had to hightail it back to report the tragedy. I started back up the hill. What if he wasn't dead? I spun and hurtled down the road. I squatted down and placed my ear on his ribs. I listened, but I heard no breathing. I heard no heartbeat. A slow, confident smile came over my face. This man was dead. His wife was my mistress, and I had a good shot at marrying her and getting his business. I grinned and jogged up the road, the adrenaline rushing into my bloodstream. I felt as if the final buzzer had sounded and I had clearly won the game. I took out my phone and called 911. You met me at 3 o'clock, Garrity. You were already back at the site when the local cops brought me back along the dirt road. They had fed me lunch and had me wrapped in some stupid wool Indian blanket. You were in your brown overcoat and had that big black guy Garrett with you. My first impression was you wanted to wrap up the investigation. They had already placed Walter Thornton in a black plastic body bag, surrounded by sheets and loaded him onto a gurney, and then placed him into a green station wagon lettered County Medical Examiner. When you turned, your eyes were solid and locked onto my image. I told you Walter Thornton insisted on walking. You didn't buy it. I said to myself as I glanced back, this woman cop thinks I killed Walter Thornton. It was as if you had figured it out only minutes after the cops called you, even before you arrived at the site. And you were the one they called to handle the investigation. I could tell you thought I did it, Garrity, because you never smiled at me. You didn't even flinch. You just kept staring. I think you were pissed off because I had planned the thing so well but you couldn't say a damn thing. Why did Walter Thornton begin walking? He wasn't around to counter my story. You even had the Torino hood open to check my story. You had Garrett look at the alternator wire, but accused me of nothing, and you hinted at nothing. I think it all made sense to you right then and there. Maybe you had me sized up right away, the cocky little punk who took this isolated road and made his ailing boss walk the distance. You didn't even call my company, Garrity. Intrinsically, you sensed I would gain from this man's death, and later, as the facts started pouring in, it became more and more apparent. The passing years only confirmed what you knew right then and there on that mushy, iced hillside. Gordon Butts killed Walter Thornton, but you just couldn't prove it. In sales, as Mr. Butts says, nothing is sacred. And with Gordon Butts, nothing is sacred. He's planning Walter Thornton's demise. Walter Neff, in double indemnity, understands full well Phyllis's character or lack of. Butts, like Neff, puts himself up a notch. He's more clever. But neither Neff nor Butts can compete with their female counterparts. Next time, episode three, as the heat gets turned up. I'm Robert P. Fitton doing what Butts and Neff should have done, and that's take a cold shower. All of my books are available in paperback, 
Kindle and audio at www.fitinbooks.com or you can look at the list of audiobooks separately at pizzazz-pizzazz.com.